morning, we will be concluding the incommunicable attributes of God. And we will be talking about the attributes of omnipresence and immutability. Let's start with the attribute of omnipresence. The omnipresence of God comes from the Latin prefix omni, meaning all. So the omnipresence of God means that God is in all places present. God is present in all places. God is present everywhere. This is attribute is also known in theology as the immensity of God. John Feinberg defines three modes or three ways that God can be present. Just simply present, not omnipresent, but just present, period. And he calls them, number one, physical presence, number two, ontological presence, and number three, fellowship presence. Now, physical presence is self-explanatory. This is the easiest one to understand. This means that God, if he wants to, whenever he wants to, can make himself physically present. For instance, in a burning bush, in a pillar of cloud, in a Shekinah glory, or in an incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second way that God is present is what Feinberg calls ontologically present. Ontologically present. And we spoke about ontology in our previous sessions. Now, ontology means being. So the ontological presence of God refers to the fact that God is present with his being, with his spiritual being. Now, we have to understand, and this is very important before we proceed, the ontological presence of God is the only way in which God is omnipresent. The ontological presence of God is the only way in which God is present in all places. So out of these three ways that God can be present, only the middle one, only the ontological presence refers to the omnipresence. That's very important to understand as we proceed. Let's look at a definition of omnipresence. And remember, we are speaking about the ontology of God, the being of God. Burkhoff defines the omnipresence of God as that perfection of the divine being by which he transcends all spatial limitations and yet is present in every point of space with his whole being. Now let's take the first part of our definition. Burkhoff says that perfection of the divine being by which he transcends all spatial limitations. Now why can God not be limited by space? Because God has no spatial limitations. He transcends all spatial limitations. He cannot be contained by space. God cannot be contained by a box or a trap, by a temple or a tomb, or even by a person's heart. No matter how large or small that space is, God cannot be contained. John 4.24 says God is spirit. God is a spirit. God is a non-corporeal being, meaning God does not have a body. God does not have physical dimensions. God is a spirit. 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
Acts 7, 48 through 50. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? God cannot be contained by a house. He cannot be contained by a temple. He cannot be contained by a building. Even heaven itself cannot contain God because God transcends all spatial limitations. God is omnipresent. God was present before there was a material universe. God was present before there was space. God was present before there was anything tangible. God is omnipresent. Now, this is important to understand because there are two grave theological errors that can happen on either extreme when we misunderstand the omnipresence of God. The first error is the thinking that God can be confined to a single object, an object of worship. And we know this well as what we call idolatry. Second commandment of the Ten Commandments says in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, the second commandment is not only an error, a misunderstanding of worship, it is an error, a misunderstanding of the person of God himself. It is a misunderstanding, an error of the attribute of God's omnipresence. God is saying, when you worship an idol, I'm not in that idol. I can't be contained by that idol. I cannot be confined to that idol. I cannot be confined to a single object of worship. Now, of course, we can have non-physical idols. But the point of the omnipresence of God is whether you worship a car or a house or a possession or a person or perhaps a career, a hope, an expectation, a dream, God is saying to you, don't confine me to your idol. I cannot be confined to your idol. I cannot be contained by your idol. I cannot be contained by your object of worship. I am omnipresent. I am ever-present. I am present everywhere. I transcend all spatial limitations. The other extreme is that God is not confined to a single object of worship, but rather... He is all material objects. This is the teaching of pantheism. The fact that God is everything and everything is God. Every single thing in this room, every single thing on this earth is God himself. Well, the Bible says that's not true either. Because the Bible says that God is present everywhere in his creation, but he is not the same thing as his creation. God is distinct from his creation. God is different from his creation. God is the creator. He's present everywhere in his creation, but he's not the same thing as his creation. He should not be equated with all material things. And so here we have the two extremes of theological errors 
regarding omnipresence. The one extreme says that God can be confined to a single object. The other extreme says that God is all objects, both of which are wrong. God transcends all spatial limitations. But brothers and sisters, the fact that God is omnipresent should not make us ever imagine that God is some cold, distant, removed deity. We should never imagine that God is some far-off, distant, uninvolved deity. No. Our God is near. Our God is present. Our God is with us. And so we move on to the second aspect of our definition. God is present in every point of space with his whole being. The classic psalm on the omnipresence of God, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. God is present in all places with his whole being, with all of who he is. God is present right here, right now, in this building, in this room, in this church, with his whole being. The Lord God is walking amongst his lampstands with his whole being, with all of who he is. God is with you. God is near. Acts 17.28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. So we return now to our diagram of the three ways in which God can be present. We talked about the physical presence of God, the ontological presence of God, and we realize that when we talk about the being of God, the ontology of God, that's the only way in which God is omnipresent. Now we move on to the last way in which God can be present, the fellowship presence of God. Now, what do we mean by fellowship presence? God's fellowship presence refers to the special presence of God that is not hindered by sin. This is communion with God. This is God making himself present to you in blessing, in joy, in peace to a believer. This is the presence of God that is obtained by faith and given by the grace of God. God is present in fellowship with those who believe. Galatians 4, 6 says, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. The fellowship presence of God is that special presence that God is with you as a believer wherever you are, no matter where you are. So why is this distinction necessary? Why even talk about these three ways in which God can be present. Well, it's very important to understand because critics of this attribute of omnipresence will often ask you questions like, well, if God is present everywhere, isn't he present with an unbeliever in the same way that he is with a believer? Or if God is present everywhere, does that mean that God is in hell? 
Well, yes, God is present everywhere, but that does not mean that he is present in the same way to everyone everywhere. And I diagram this for you here. On the side, we have the three ways in which God can be present, physical, ontological, and fellowship presence. And along the top, I tried to think of the various categories or types of location that God can be present. So, for instance, with a believer, with a non-believer, or with a Christian, or with a non-Christian, rather, on earth, in his creation, in hell, and in heaven. So the first one, God is physically present in heaven, and if he wants to, he can make himself physically present on earth in his creation. For instance, as we said, the incarnation. The second one is the easiest, the ontological presence of God. Because remember, that is where God is omnipresent. So we check off all of the boxes, because God is present everywhere in terms of his ontology, in terms of his being. But the last one we have to understand, we have to have a nuanced understanding of the fellowship presence of God. Because God is present in fellowship with a Christian, but he is not present in fellowship with a non-Christian. He is not present in fellowship in hell, but he is present in fellowship in heaven. So the answer to a question, which is meant to stump Christians, if God is everywhere, is God in hell? The answer is yes. God is present in hell as a judge. God is present in hell, pouring out wrath and justice upon those who did not believe. But God is not present in hell in the same way that he is present in heaven. In heaven... God is present with blessing, with peace, with joy, with fellowship. So to conclude our discussion on the omnipresence of God, let me just say a few practical remarks about omnipresence. Number one, since God is everywhere, there is nowhere you can flee from God. You cannot flee from God. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. God knows all of our paths. All of them. Every single one of them. God is with you wherever you go, whether that be in the quiet of your own home or the reverberations of your own heart. God sees you. God knows you. God sees what is in the darkness. He sees every single secret sin that you have. You cannot hide from God. You cannot flee from God. There's a true story of a pastor who was having an adulterous affair with a woman. And he got on a plane, and he told his family in his church that he was going to a conference. But on the way to the conference, he stopped by at a hotel to meet his mistress. He went far away from home, far away from his family, far away from church, and he met his mistress in a hotel in a random city. Well, as the pastor and his mistress were leaving their hotel room, literally at the same moment they were walking out the door, across the hallway, the door opened and out walked the co-elder of the pastor's church. The co-elder was on a business trip. 
He had gone far away from home, far away from his family, far away from church, far away from his life, staying in the same city at the same hotel across the hallway. Pastor was caught red-handed. He thought he could flee from God, but you can't flee from God. He thought he could hide from God, but you can't hide from God. God sees. God knows. God is there. God is everywhere. The second practical application is that since God is everywhere, there is nowhere you cannot flee to God. Psalm 61 verse 2 says, From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. No matter where you are on the face of this earth, brothers and sisters, you can call out to God and you can be confident that God will hear you. From the remotest part of the earth, even in no man's land, God will be with you wherever you go. And you can rest in that and trust in that. Thirdly, the only way to flee from God's presence to judge you is to flee into his presence to bless you. We've already established that God is everywhere, that God's presence is everywhere. So the only question that remains is, which presence of God are you under? Are you under God's presence to bless you? Or are you under God's presence to judge you? The only way for you to flee from God's presence to judge you is to flee into his presence to bless you. And that is to flee into Jesus Christ and be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is in the gospel. It is in the gospel. So that's the omnipresence of God. Secondly, we will move on to the immutability of God. In the mid-1900s, there was once a meeting between theologians, very famous theologians, a gathering of theologians. And at this meeting was one of the great evangelical heroes of the 20th century. His name was Carl Henry. He was the original editor of the magazine Christianity Today. You've probably heard of that magazine. And it was better when Carl Henry was the editor. Well, Carl Henry asked a question of the famous neo-Orthodox semi-liberal theologian Karl Barth. And Karl Barth dismissed the question from Carl Henry, and he made a joke, and he said, is that Christianity today or Christianity yesterday? As if Christianity had passed by Karl Henry and his conservative Christian beliefs. Well, Henry, never one to back down, replied, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. I love that story because it illustrates for us the unchanging truth of the gospel and the unchanging nature of God, the attribute which we call the immutability of God. Immutable comes from the root word to mutate. So something that is immutable does not change. In fact, it is something that cannot change. This is also called the unchangeableness of God. Now notice that it is unchangeable, not just unchanging. Unchangeable means that God cannot change. 
God is beyond change. He does not have the ability to change. It is impossible for God to change. Now you have to understand that when we talk about the immutability of God, we are really talking about an attribute which is unique to the God of the Bible. You will be hard-pressed to find other world religions which believe that God is eternally unchanging. Ancient Greek and Roman religions, their gods are incredibly fickle. They change as much as we do. Hinduism does not believe in immutable gods, gods plural. Now, I'm no Muslim scholar, but from what I understand in Islam, Islam does not teach that Allah is unchangeable because it is not one of his 99 names in the Quran. The God of Mormonism changes his ways and his laws all the time because there is added revelation. So God is always changing. But brothers and sisters, we worship a God that is unchanging, that is immutable, indeed, in fact, unchangeable. It is impossible for God to change. Now, as we look towards a definition of immutability, Grudem defines the immutability of God as God is unchangeable, there's that word again, in his being, attributes, purposes, and promises. So let's explore our definition. First, God is unchangeable in his being. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 says, God has no variation or shifting shadow. God can never change who he is. He has always been and he will always be God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are the same and your years will never end, says the psalmist. A.W. Pink says, He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. It is impossible for God to change in his being. Then we move on to God is unchangeable in his attributes. All of God's attributes will forever be the same, never subject to change. Now, I want to explore this actually a little bit further. Because when we look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the catechism teaches us that immutability forms a foundation for the other attributes of God. Immutability further defines and characterizes the other attributes of God. Well, what do I mean? First, let's read the Shorter Catechism. Question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The theologian Robert Raymond diagrams it for us like this. He notes that the Shorter Catechism first defines God as a spirit, and that's what we just talked about. God is a spirit. And then, the fact that he is a spirit is then qualified by three adjectives, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Now follow me here. The Catechism then tells us in what ways is God infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. How is God infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? And it proceeds to give us seven attributes. So to add it all together from the diagram, we should think about it like this. The Catechism is teaching us that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. 
Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. Do you understand? That is, immutability further defines and characterizes the other attributes. All of God's attributes are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Let me just ask you a question. I thought this was interesting, so I'd like to share it with you. What separates God from his creatures? What makes God different? Well, it's not the first column. It's not the fact that he is a spirit, because, well, angels and demons are spirits, are they not? It's not the third column, the seven attributes, the seven nouns, because, after all, we can be holy, we can have justice, we can have power, we can have wisdom. What separates God? What makes God who he is? It's the three adjectives in the middle. Only God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's what it means to be God. That's what separates God from his creation. Next, let's see that God is unchangeable in his purposes. God's eternal purposes don't change. Once God has it in his mind to do something, he will do it. Once God has decreed to do something, it will come to pass. Psalm 33:11 The counsel of the Lord stands forever the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46:10 and 11 My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is not capriciously or whimsically deciding from one moment to the next what will happen on the earth. No, from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, God decided, God purposed, God counseled, God decreed to have history unfold in the way that it does to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that plan will never change. And we will talk more about that when we talk about the will and decrees of God in a future session. Lastly, God is unchangeable in his promises. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Brethren, the reality is, is that in this world, we cannot trust anything like we can trust God. Everything that we have in this world, marriage, family, job, bank account, house, whatever you want, name it, it is subject to change. It is subject to rot, to decay. It is subject to sin. But brethren, when God promises you something, you can be absolutely sure that he will do it. You can bank your life, your soul, and your eternity on the promises of God because they are unchanging. So that's the immutability of God. I'd like to summarize that with a quote by Hermann Bavinck, a great Dutch theologian. The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. 
Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in him alone, for only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in scripture, God is often called the rock. So I thought, you know, we could stop here, and I think we'd have a pretty good grasp of our understanding of immutability, but I just couldn't help myself. At this time, I'd like to examine challenges to the doctrine of immutability. There are four traditional historical challenges to immutability. Number one, process theology, which I actually had planned to talk about, but there's just not enough time. So if you're interested, you can talk to me afterwards. Secondly, open theism. Thirdly, passages about divine learning. For instance, Genesis 22, when God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Hmm. What does that mean? We'll actually talk about open theism and passages about divine, quote-unquote, learning when we talk about the omniscience of God. Well, fourth and last, passages about divine repentance. Divine repentance. And there's actually a subset of immutability called the impassibility of God. And this answers the question, does God have emotion? Have you ever thought about that? Well, with the permission of the elders, I'd like to actually do an entire session all its own on the impassibility of God, because I, again, thought I could squeeze that in in 10 minutes, and that's just impossible. So, for this morning, we will talk about the so-called divine repentance passages. The Hebrew word in these passages is naham, and it's variously translated as repent, relent, regret, grieved, or in more modern translations, changed his mind. For instance, Exodus 32, 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said that he would do to his people. The King James Version translates most of these passages as repent. God repents, and hence they're called the divine repentance passages. So the problem is, is if God changes his mind, is he truly unchanging? If God repents, is God truly unchangeable? To make the problem even more vexing, there are passages in the Bible which say that God does not repent. What do we make of those? Well, I admit this is a very difficult topic, so I'd like to cover it in the next eight minutes. (laughs) I'd like to give us three keys to understanding these so-called divine repentance passages. First, God's repentance means a change of action, not a change in nature or purpose. Numbers 23:19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Now here's one of those texts which I just mentioned. It says that God does not repent. Well, the point of this text is, when we take it with the rest of the counsel of scripture, is that there is a way in which God repents, and there is a way in which God does not repent. God repents, but he does not repent like a man repents. That is the point of this passage. When we think of the word repent, we think of repentance from sin. We think of a change of nature. We think of changing from depravity towards righteousness, from unrighteousness towards holiness. That is not the way that we should think about this 
with reference to God. The word naham means to change your path, change your action, change your course. The Hebrew scholar Holiday defines it as to turn from a former attitude. So when we read of God repenting, it does not mean that God has sinned. It does not mean that God has done wrong. It does not mean that God has made a mistake. It means that God has changed his action. Secondly, God's repentance is a reflection of a change in creation, not a change in God. Bruce Ware says, when God is said to repent, it indicates, number one, his awareness that the human situation has altered, and number two, his desire to act in a way fitting to this changed situation. Now, this is supported in this passage, which I think really captures this concept. Jeremiah 18, 8 through 10. If that nation concerning of which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, Naham, of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent, Naham, of the good that I had intended to do to it. Brothers and sisters, this must be our guiding principle. God does not change, but we do. The creator does not change, but the creation changes. And because we change, because the creation changes, God must act accordingly to keep himself unchanging. God always acts the same way toward evil and the same way toward good. So if a man or a woman changes his relationship with God toward good, God must act accordingly to keep himself unchanging. If you change your action toward God toward evil, God must change his action toward you to keep himself unchanging. Let me illustrate it with two examples, which at first glance appear to be contradictory. Jonah 3.10. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, you know the story of Jonah very well. Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, when the Ninevites repent, God relents. When the Ninevites repent, God repents. When the Ninevites repent of their sin, in order for God to maintain his immutable grace and his immutable truthfulness, God must relent of the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. God's repentance doesn't threaten his immutability, it affirms his immutability. Let's look at the opposite case. Ezekiel 24, 14. I, the Lord, have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not repent. According to your ways and your doings, I will judge you, says the Lord God. God does not repent because the people do not repent. In order for God to maintain his immutable truthfulness and his immutable justice, when the people do not repent, God must not relent. 
In the end, God is doing what he has always promised to do. God has always promised that when we repent, God will relent. When we repent, God will repent. But when we do not repent, God will not repent. Third and last key to understanding these passages is God's repentance was sovereignly ordained, not an unforeseen circumstance. J.I. Packer says, there is no suggestion that this reaction was not foreseen or that it took God by surprise and was not provided for in his eternal plan. No change in his eternal purpose is implied when he begins to deal with a person in a new way. Brethren, we have to understand that from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, God decreed, God purposed that he would change his course of action at that moment of time according to the events which unfolded at that moment of time. Now, Ben, that sounds really great, but do you really have support for that concept that God has really planned this from the very beginning and he's foreordained even his own repentance? Great question. Let's look at two examples. There are more, but we only have time for two. Example number one, 1 Samuel 15, 35. You know it well. The Lord regretted Naham that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now this looks like God repenting. Oh my gosh, I didn't see that one coming. Saul, he's so wicked. I should never have made him king over Israel. Now I gotta change my plan. I gotta change my course. I should never have made Saul king. Well, how do we know that from the very beginning, this was all a part of God's plan? We know because way back in Genesis 49, hundreds of years before this moment in 1 Samuel 15, God says this. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will have the scepter forever. Judah will have the kingship forever. Judah will have the eternal line of kings. But Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. From the very beginning, God never thought of Saul as the first in the line of kings for Israel. From the very beginning, God never thought of Saul as having the eternal scepter of Israel. God planned it. Second example. This one's my favorite. Jonah 3.10 again. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. We know that God's repentance was foreordained because God actually sends a human agent to bring about his own repentance. Now, have you ever thought, why did God involve Jonah in the first place? I mean, he obviously wasn't this great upstanding prophet, if you know what I mean. Why did he send them to Nineveh? Why did he send Jonah to Nineveh in the first place? If God really meant to judge Nineveh, why didn't he just do it? And why give Nineveh 40 days? Why not just send them and then do it? Answer? Because God intended to bring forgiveness to the Ninevites all along. But God could not bring forgiveness to Nineveh unless Nineveh repented. But Nineveh would not repent without the preaching of a prophet. 
And so God sends Jonah to elicit their repentance so that he could bring them the forgiveness he originally intended. God sends Jonah to elicit his own divine repentance. It's foreordained. So while the perfections of God are unchanging, the unchanging plan is unfolding. Well, I'd like to close our discussion this morning with two practical applications of the immutability of God. First, God's immutability makes the Bible relevant for us today. Have you ever met people, or perhaps even you yourself have thought, well, this book, it's so ancient. It was written by people that are thousands of years ago, and I mean, really, what do I have to do with animal sacrifices and temples and building a fence on the roof of my house anyway? It's irrelevant to me. It's antiquated. It's old. Well, J.I. Packer answers this question. It is true that in terms of space, time, and culture, they and the historical epoch to which they belonged are a very long way away from us. But the link between them and us is not found at that level. The link is God himself. For the God with whom they had to do is the same God with whom we have to do. We could sharpen the point by saying exactly the same God, for God does not change. Thus it appears that the truth on which we must dwell in order to dispel this feeling that there is an unbridgeable gulf between the position of men and women in the Bible times and in our own is the truth of God's immutability. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is as relevant for you today as it was for the original audience 2,000 years ago because God is unchanging. God is immutable. Secondly, God's immutability allows us to rest in the gospel. Some Christians, some true, sincere, genuine, real Christians really struggle with accepting the love and the grace of God with feeling accepted by God. Some Christians are haunted, even by past sins, sometimes even before they became a Christian. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was a crime. Maybe it was an abortion. Some Christians even now, real, true Christians, who are really seeking to strive in the power of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit to conquer sin, it keep falling short, and you doubt that God loves you or accepts you, and you feel some days like God will just utterly cast you out. Well, brothers and sisters, true Christians, if you understand the gospel and you understand the immutability of God, you can rest in the gospel. Because when you believed, Jesus Christ's righteousness was imputed to your account. In Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The unchanging, immutable righteousness of Christ is credited to you, and God accepts and loves you because of Christ. That will never change. So brethren, if you ever doubt, rest in Christ. Rest in the unchanging righteousness of our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, 
As we close this time, we affirm that you are Lord over time. You are Lord over space. You are Lord even over anything that changes. You are Lord over your creation. And you are Lord over us. Help us to live that way. Even now as we partake of this meal, even now as we seek to have fellowship with one another, Lord, may you be Lord over our conversations, over the way that we eat. Help us to do so to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.